Well, thanks, John and Ben and everybody else for the invitation uh, to be here. When I hear uh, the list of speakers you've had in the past and even the ones you've planned for the future, I, I just have to tell you right at the very beginning, um, they're all Premier League speakers. I'm an Irish League player, so I'm really uh, out of my depth here in a very significant way, and I hope you'll be gentle and easy on me because I'm, I'm not at that kind of level that other great names are that you've had in the past, and I'm simply sharing with you uh, some very simple and not terribly profound insights that I have here in John's Gospel. Uh, you've been encouraged to read John's Gospel and you know that John has a very clear and definite purpose in view as he writes his Gospel. There's a very precise purpose stated in chapter 20 verse 31. Uh, these are written, says John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's very much an evangelistic thrust to this gospel, different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that John begins not just with the birth of Christ, but he begins at the very beginning. He's really a theologian of creation and of recreation, and he goes right back to the very beginning in the prologue that John read for us a few moments ago. So, uh, John's gospel begins with this prologue, chapter 1, uh, the, the passage we normally read at Christmas. He begins at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. And he has a lot to say on creation, a lot to say about recreation, about new creation, about life as it is restored through Jesus Christ. It ends with an epilogue, uh, chapter 21, the passage where Jesus restores Peter to his apostolic ministry. And in between the prologue and the epilogue, the gospel's really divided into two parts. Part one, sometimes called the book of signs, uh, chapter one through to the end of chapter 12. It's the words, the works of Jesus that point to his identity as the Messiah and the Saviour. So, for instance, when he claims to be the light of the world and that those who follow him will not walk in darkness, he then illustrates that by giving sight to a man who was born blind in chapter 9. So you have these seven big signs in the first part of the book, turning water into wine, chapter 2, the healing of the official son, chapter 4. The healing of a lame man, chapter 5. The feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6. Walking on the sea, chapter 6 again. Giving sight to the man born blind, uh, chapter 9. And then the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. So I'm having coffee with my friend Desi Alexander in Union College. We're talking a bit about the book of Exodus. Desi's written just a definitive commentary on Exodus. I'm telling him a while ago I'm wanting to preach in John's Gospel and Desi immediately launches in to explain to me the parallels between John's Gospel and the signs in Exodus. Hadn't ever seen it before. What's the very first sign in Exodus? Do you remember when uh, uh, Moses was confronting Pharaoh? What's the first thing he does to really warn Pharaoh about the big, the big plague? Do you remember? 
Oh, you forgot. <laughs> it's the, the river, the Nile is turned into blood, isn't it? Very first thing that uh, uh, Moses does as he confronts Pharaoh, the river's turned into blood. What's the very first sign that Jesus does here in John's gospel? Turns water into wine. Hmm, interesting. What's the very last plague in Exodus? Well, it's really the plague of death. It's when the angel of death comes over and kills the firstborn in every family or threatens the firstborn in every family. What's the very last sign here in John's gospel? Well, it's either the raising of Lazarus or it's the resurrection of Christ himself. So you can begin to see the signs that John is presenting us with in order to tell us that Jesus is the Messiah, a sense in which they are parallel with the signs that Moses had in the book of Exodus. And then the book of signs ends very abruptly at the end of chapter 12, and we're into chapter 13, normally known as the book of the passion or the book of glory. Uh, the scene moves from larger groups to just a room, a room that contains 13 men, Jesus and his 12 disciples. And the glory that was hidden to the world that has rejected him is now being increasingly revealed to his disciples who trusted and who loved him. So from chapter 13 through to the end of the book, we have this upper room discourse, uh, this conversation between Jesus and his own disciples. So that's the very rough analysis of John's gospel that you'll keep in your mind as we move through this. But as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about um, over uh, this weekend, just as I was saying to John a moment ago, what would I want to say to my 25-year-old self? What are the key lessons that even emerge in this Gospel of John? What message does John have for me? So lesson number one this evening for just these few minutes. Don't seek your joy anywhere else but in Christ. Don't seek your joy anywhere else but in Christ. With that in mind, let me read from chapter 2. And we begin at verse 1, the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it had come from, though his servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone drinks or serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana 
in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. One of the things you've probably been taught and one of the things we continue to tell our children and our young people is that if you work really, really hard and you do your best, you can succeed in virtually any area you choose to succeed in. Uh, we tell them that there are all these possibilities out there. It's simply up to them to be dedicated, to be committed. And if they are, then the chances are they'll get to the top and they'll be really happy and really fulfilled. So many of us view life like a great mountain hike, uh, ascending a mountain. Uh, some of us have different peaks in view, different mountains to climb, but with great energy and a tremendous amount of anticipation and effort, we prepare ourselves, believing that if we work really hard, we get to the top, then we'll be really happy, really joyful, really fulfilled. Sad reality is, for many of us, it just doesn't happen. Along the way, <coughs> we find ourselves, <coughs> excuse me, not only getting exhausted and tired, but in many cases we actually slip and fall and slide down the mountain. And when we have fallen and we're left a bit bruised and a bit bleeding, we can become angry and annoyed and irritated. And we say to ourselves, well, I thought by this time in my life, I would have made more progress. I thought I'd be a lot closer to where I was trying to go in terms of my career, in terms of my relationships. I thought for sure I'd be further along, and now look where I am. It seems as though I'm going nowhere. And you can begin to complain. Why has life been so unfair? Why has God been so unfair to me? Why have I not made more progress up the mountain? And then you look and you see these people who have made it to the top. And you say to yourself, boy, that must be great. must be wonderful. What a great scene. What a great view they must have. So you keep on climbing and you try to get to the top. And those who get to the top, what do you see? Are you totally satisfied? Totally thrilled? Totally fulfilled? Or is it just the same old grind on the other side? I want you to notice the great contrast between that idea of life being all about effort and work and perseverance and trying hard and what John writes, look it up, chapter 16, verse 22, where Jesus says, you will see me again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Or even more pointedly, in chapter 15, verse 11, you maybe know these, this verse better, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And we conclude from that, <coughs> that these human souls of ours are built for something more than just human honour, human applause, human acclaim, human achievement. Very few of us can get to the peaks and the tops of the mountains that some other people achieve. But Jesus says you're built for something else. You're built for something far greater than that. You're built for a huge and lasting joy. Because I'm the Lord and I can provide that for you. Really is an amazing statement by Jesus. He intends that our lives be full 
of joy, a joy that will not be taken from us. And of all the arguments in favor of God and Christ and Christian discipleship, I think one of the greatest has to be this argument that John presents here from the lips of Jesus, the argument from joy. Uh, you probably know a lot of arguments for the existence of God. You know, the cosmological argument talks about the beginning of the world and says, well, there must be an uncaused cause. There must be an unmoved mover. Or, or maybe you've been impressed with the teleological argument. Where did all this wonderfully complex and intricate world come from? Could an explosion in a paint factory have resulted in Mona Lisa being painted accidentally? Could a group of monkeys all randomly pressing the keys of a word processor have produced the Encyclopedia Britannica? Probably not. So where has this world come from? It hasn't been time plus chance plus the random movement of molecules in the, in the universe. There has to be some mind behind it. It can't, can't have come about by accident. And that's really the teleological argument. And then there's the ontological argument which, if you don't know it, some of the clever people here tonight will be able to explain it to you. That greater than which none other can exist, if you can remember that argument from any philosophy course you've ever taken. But the argument from joy is a wonderful argument. And it's not the one that we talk about a lot. That we can know true and lasting joy in our lives through knowing God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's what John 2 is all about. It's all about Jesus, the joy giver. So here's this wedding in Cana. And what's happened is that there's a real shortage of joy. When Jesus comes to the wedding feast, he wasn't coming to the kind of wedding reception that we would probably think of today, even if there was no COVID around. Um, in the course of my ministry, I reckon I have officiated at around 300 weddings, maybe a few more than that. And I've attended almost the same number of wedding receptions in that time. And some of them can be very fabulous and very expensive, all built around interesting themes. You know, I had one couple who built their theme around a Caribbean theme. You know, they were going to the Caribbean for their honeymoon. So everything in the wedding was Caribbean. Uh, another couple, he was a piano player. And it was ebony and ivory, you know, and her dress was ivory, not ebony. <laughs> <laughs> Trimmed in ebony. And, uh, you know, all the music at the wedding reception was all around that theme. But, you know, compared to wedding feasts in the ancient world, our wedding dues are quite modest and quite tame. Wedding feasts back then were really big deals, weren't they? Uh, the biggest day in the life of the person in that part of the world at that time, not just a sedate little party, a regional festival, if you will. And when I say regional, I mean the entire community was invited and the whole community was part of it. So when the supply of wine began to run out, these people were facing a big disaster. <clears throat> the wine was the joy of the feast. There are all kinds of rabbinical statements that make that point. If you didn't have the wine there, and if it wasn't good wine, then the feast was a failure. Running out of wine was uh, what uh, any, wasn't just what anyone expected. There's a rabbinical statement that says, where there's no wine, there's no joy. 
So we're talking about a wedding feast. We're talking about the biggest day in the couple's life, the biggest day for their families, the biggest day for the entire region. And when the wine runs out, understand this. This is a major local disaster. Well, nobody knows why the wine ran out, do they? Somebody somewhere made a mistake. Perhaps some kind of miscalculation. Maybe more people turned up uh, than they had expected. So it's perfectly natural for Mary to come to Jesus and say, have you heard? They're running out of wine. What are we going to do about it? What, what are you going to do about it? Just a natural thing for Mary to do. And Jesus turns around and makes one of the most cryptic statements that he's ever made. And during his public ministry, he made a lot of cryptic statements. The translation obscures it a wee bit as Jesus says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And you'll know that in the book of John, Jesus' hour, and that word hour, is a reference to his passion and his death. In John 12, John 13, John 17, he talks about his time or his hour, the moment of his death and his crucifixion. So we need to understand what's actually happening here. Something very strange, something rather abrupt, something rather startling about Jesus' statement. Mary walks up to Jesus and says, you know what, they're running out of wine. This is going to be terrible. Jesus turns to her and says, woman, I'm not ready to die yet. There's been a bit of discussion among the commentators about how to translate the way Jesus addresses his mother. I must say I like F.F. Bruce's interpretation best of all. He actually says it's an Ulster expression. He says it's as though Jesus were an Ulster man. He says, woman, dear, what does that have to do with me? You can almost imagine it. What on earth does he mean? What do you have to do with me? Woman, why are you bothering me? Don't you see I'm not ready to die yet? Mary was obviously used to that sort of thing by now. And she turns to the servants and she says, don't let this throw you. Don't worry. Just do whatever he says. Now, what are we to make of that strange statement? <clears throat> Clearly, Jesus is lost in thought, deeply stirred to the very depths of his being because he sees what has happened. And what has happened along with his mother's request is really a metaphor for his entire mission and career. He sees the sadness, the despair, the tragedy that's about to happen for this couple and for this family. And in a sense, <clears throat> it's pointing to a greater disaster, a greater sadness, a greater despair that will afflict the entire human race. He sees the humiliation that's coming for this family and he knows that the greater human party won't be able to deliver on the expectations that they have. The wine will run out. The ascent of the mountain will not take us to a place of happiness. It will ultimately be disappointing. It won't deliver the joy we had hoped for. And Jesus is the one who's left to pick up the pieces. He will ultimately and finally restore the joy. But he knows what it will cost him in order to do that. 
In other words, he's saying, what's happening to this bridegroom and this bridal couple? The sadness that's overtaking them at their wedding feast is a metaphor for the very reason that he has come into the world. There's a sense in which this episode in Cana defines his whole mission. You see, the joy, which is what the wine represents, always runs out on every party that sinners throw. And what's ironic is that for us modern people, joy and happiness is more important to us now than it has ever been in any previous generation. And yet it's scarcer than it has ever been. We all want to be happy and joyful. But that happiness, that fulfillment, that joy is so elusive. Uh, I'm sure you've watched some of those films where people sacrifice their lives for the sake of honour and to uphold important principles. Uh, watch any of the great war films like Dunkirk or Glory, the film about the black soldiers in the American Civil War who were willing to die for their principles, or Hacksaw Ridge, an American medic, uh, refuses to kill people but risks his lives his life to save as many as he can, uh, wounded and dying soldiers. And you can begin to see how very committed some people are, how they act in unselfish and honourable and principled ways. But that's not the story of many other people's lives. It's not about commitment, it's not about sacrifice, it's about me. It's about my happiness, my fulfilment. May even be the attitude of your heart, certainly is sometimes the attitude of my heart. There's a story in the newspaper some years ago about a woman whose husband had become sick or had been injured. He was left confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. After a couple of years, his wife, having cared for him for those couple of years, left him for another man. And the man in the wheelchair committed suicide. A couple of years later, somebody was talking to the wife about this situation and he said, she said, are you trying to make me feel guilty? I refuse, I don't feel guilty. I had my chance, I had to take it. Everyone has a right to happiness. In one of the congregations I served, I had a woman who was a real professing Christian, a really good church member, regular at the midweek meeting. And then she met a man she had known 25 years previously before she was married, back when she was a teenager. And the relationship between them was rekindled. And she came to tell me that she was leaving her husband of 22 years to go and live with this old boyfriend. And I said to her, why would you do that? Why would you do such a thing? And she said, I've had 22 years of an unfulfilling and loveless marriage and I think I deserve some happiness. I'm determined to be happy. And you see, for many people, even those who have strong Christian commitment, we think their joy and their happiness is the new highest good. It's the thing they live for. Many of you know already that we're created with deep and serious longings. There are things we just crave, things we long for. And yet we need to understand that some of those longings will never be fully met in this life. 
And people with some experience of life understand this and will tell you it. When I was growing up as a child and a teenager, I was really interested in sports, still am, still fight this battle about my interest in sport, far too interested in it at times. I love football, loved rugby, loved cricket. My father was born and raised in Waringstown, the home of cricket, the best cricket team in Ireland for many years. He was a great cricket fan. He met my mother who came from Larne and he moved to Larne. But every week he got the Lurgan Mail so that he could follow Waringstown cricket and Glenavon football team. And I read the Lurgan Mail and I was interested too, you know, uh, this is really dating me rather badly. It used to be you would get, if, if England was playing cricket in the West Indies, after the 10 o'clock news on BBC radio, you used to get the closing overs of the day's play from Kingston, Jamaica. And my father would have the radio all two years. The one of those old radios and you had to tune to get it in. And we would listen, you know, to... Um, the commentator commentating in this beautiful warm weather in Kingston, Jamaica, and we're sitting freezing in February in, uh, in Larne, in, in our wee house around the fire. And he was really so interested in that. And he knew I was interested in it, but he was a totally devoted Christian man. And he used to say to me all the time, Stafford, don't get emotionally involved. Don't get too interested in these things. You'll discover, this was his phrase, you'll discover that the world is a very disappointing place. And he was using world in that spiritual sense, the world that is opposed to Christ. He was speaking from experience. It took me a number of years to discover that for myself. When you first fall in love, when you first get married, you may think, this is it. This is what I've been longing for. Life's going to be perfect now. Or when you enter your professional career and you begin to taste a little bit of professional success, you think, great, I'm on my way up the mountain. I'm headed for the top. And when you get enough money to buy the BMW or to buy the second home or to have a regular holiday in the sun, you think, this is going to give me such joy, such satisfaction. And when you start, first start these new things, you feel like this is going to be it. The truth and the fact is, it never delivers. The desires, the feelings fade even as you grasp those glittering sought-after prizes. The joy soon evaporates. And as time goes on, you begin to realise you don't have it. And once you decide you don't have that real joy that you really desire and crave, there are only four things you can do. Tim Keller says, four ways to respond. You're trying to get up the mountain, you're not really making it, and even when you do make it, it's not delivering. He says, you can, here's the four things. You can either blame the things themselves, you can blame yourself, you can blame the universe, or you can do something radically different. Some people blame the things themselves. The reason I'm not happy it's because I need a new spouse, I need a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, I need a new mate, I need some new scenery, I need a new job, I need a new career. And a lot of people spend their lives in revolving careers, revolving mates, revolving partners, revolving businesses. You blame the things. It couldn't possibly be me. It couldn't be anything in me. And a lot of the most successful people in life are like that, bored, discontented, always moving on to something else as they seek this joy. 
Or secondly, you might blame not the things, you can blame yourself. A lot of us have been in that boat. The reason I don't have it is because I've made a bad choice. I haven't lived up to the standards myself. I haven't been able to come through myself. I'm going to have to work harder. I'm going to have to try harder. And you spend your life <clears throat> full of self-doubt and it gets, it gets us to a place where we're depressed and feel self-disgust and self-loathing. We blame ourselves thinking it's all our own fault. Or some people, when they realise they don't have the joy they crave, they just blame the universe. It's a fairly easy and convenient thing to do, but you do so at a terrible price. People who say, oh, well, when I was young, it was very idealistic. I used to think this and that, but now I've grown up and I realise it's not going to happen. I'm, I'll stop howling after the moon. And when you've done that, you've killed the part of yourself that really wanted the satisfaction, that really wanted the joy, you've killed the part of yourself that made you truly human. There's one other way you can do. You can blame the things, you can blame yourself, you can blame the universe, <clears throat> but you can do something radically different. You can blame your separation from God. That's not blaming yourself, that's not blaming the universe, it's not blaming the things, even those things take part of that. Recognize where this has all gone wrong is in terms of my relationship with the Lord. If I'm really going to be happy, really going to be fulfilled, I need to get my relationship with God right. And this great argument from joy or the argument for joy is made very eloquently by C.S. Lewis in a talk he gave in the BBC in the 1940s let me quote you a little bit of that radio talk. Uh, Lewis says, Creatures are born with desires, are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Therefore, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Therefore, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. And there is such a thing as sex. If I find within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the only probable explanation is that I was made for something in another world. Interesting, isn't it? If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy this desire, that doesn't mean that the universe is a fraud or that we have failed or that the things have failed. As Lewis says, the earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, only to arouse it, to suggest that there is the real thing. There is something more beyond this life where those desires will be fully met. So there's a shortage of joy. And Jesus Christ is the answer to that joy shortage. That's why he turns the water into wine. For years, you've heard it. People have said Christianity is repressive, narrow-minded, anti-joy. Christianity's job is to wrap you up like a mummy so that we're so uptight, so guilt-ridden, we can't really move, we can't really enjoy ourselves. It's a straitjacket that confines us and restricts us. So our task is to get free of all that guilt-inducing influence that Christianity has uh, put upon us. 
And they think that what those of us in the church are saying, well, do you want to be a Christian? Okay, well then, keep your nose clean, keep out of trouble, come along to church, give out a few bulletins at the door, help with the children's church, work with the tech team. It's not a very interesting life, but that's the price you've got to pay if you want your soul to be safe from eternal damnation. They think that Christians are uptight, judgmental, spend all of their lives constantly looking at other people and saying to them, I don't find that very funny. But, but notice this carefully. When Jesus Christ began to make his debut and to begin his ministry, when he did his first miraculous sign, what did he choose to do? Think about it for a moment. If you were going to make your first public statement, if you were going to do your first show or your first recital or your first foray out into the public arena, your first outing for the team, what would you do? Well, you know you've only one chance to make a first impression. So you're going to try to make sure people see you for who you really are, what you're really about, what you really can do. <clears throat> you want people to see, excuse me, the essential, the critical, the best, the most important part of you, not something that's peripheral or incidental. So Jesus in this first miracle shows us something that would give us the essence of what he's about. What did he do? Did he heal the sick? Did he raise the dead? How did he show his glory? Was it the first way he decided to show his glory by feeding 5,000 people at the same time? All of those things sound logical. That would show us who he really is, we think. But his first miracle, the way in which he chose to show us and introduce himself to the world, he created 100 to 150 gallons of unusually good wine for a party. That was his first sign, his first miracle. And if you're wondering about it and you're scratching your head and saying, that's kind of strange, that's odd, why would he do such a thing? Then the answer gets us to the heart of what Jesus was doing in coming to earth. He's saying to us, do you want to know what I'm really about? Do you want to know the essence of what I'm doing, of who I am, what I've come to do? Do you want to know who the essential Jesus Christ is? I've come to bring joy. Wherever my feet pass, the desert blooms. Wherever I turn my face, the trees will laugh and clap their hands for joy. Wherever I go, there must always, inevitably, infallibly, inescapably be joy. That's the essence of what Jesus is about. And if you think that Christianity is some kind of bargain where what you have to do is come in and feel a kind of discomfort and keep the rules and give up all kinds of enjoyable things and live a very narrow, restricted kind of life so that you miss out on all that's good, that eventually someday there's going to be pie in the sky when you die by and by, but you'll only start to slice that pie later on. And meanwhile, there's all this other stuff you've got to go through. If you think that that's what Christianity is about, says Jesus, if you think that that's what I'm about, then you don't understand me. I'm in charge of the most wonderful, joyful feast imaginable. Put this story in John 2 in the context of the whole Bible and you begin to see it a bit more clearly. What's the climax to redemptive history? 
Well, it's that great day that the Bible talks about again and again in Scripture, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the last day. And what's it going to be like? What, what do you have in mind when you think of that final end time? Well, here's what the Bible thinks of. This is the image it uses. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a feast to end all feasts. The Bible tells us that on the last day, we're all going to be brought into that great feast and it will be our feast and we will feel the way a bride felt at this wedding feast. What an incredible image. Except the reality is going to be much greater than the image. Think about what the woman is feeling on her wedding day. She's saying to herself, I'm understood. I'm loved. I'm accepted by the one person in the entire world whom I admire and respect and love the most. And today, that person incredibly is binding himself to me so that everything he has and everything he is becomes mine. And on top of that, all my best friends are here. And the people I love the most are coming here and they're watching this happening. And their cup is being filled up by my happiness and my blessedness. What a wonderful day this is. And the Bible tells us that's just a hint of what the joy will be on that day when we all come into the wedding supper of the Lamb. Maybe right now you feel as though you're sitting down at the bottom of your personal mountain, feeling a bit bruised and broken. And you see the people who are on top of the hill uh, with wonderful lives, wonderful relationships, and you're thinking to yourself, if only I was like them, I would be happy and fulfilled. Let me tell you, the people that you think are up on top of the hill will tell you that they don't have the joy that we all hope and long for. And Jesus says to us, the only way you'll ever find who you really are is if you come to me, if you're united to me by faith. And if that happens, then there's a day coming when you will enter this wonderful feast, a feast that will last forever. So great, so marvelous, that the best wedding feasts in the history of the world are just dim outlines of it. It will be yours. Now, Here's the difficult bit. The reason Jesus is acting so strangely and acting so sad and speaking so abruptly here is because he knows that the only way that's ever going to come to us is through his R. The reason he feels the way he feels, the reason he's acting the way he does, is because he knows how that joy will get to us. Jesus is sitting amongst all these people, enjoying a great day out, laughing, singing at the top of their voices, sipping the sweet cup of joy. And Jesus knows the only possible way he can actually bring the whole world to that place and into that condition is through his hour. The only way they can sip and we can sip this great cup of joy is if he drinks to the bottom the poisonous cup the cup of God's wrath, the bitter cup of suffering and death. See the irony of it? Sitting there at this joyful wedding feast, and he knows that he's got to sip the cup of sorrow. Here's something nobody else knows or understands. 
but he knew it. And the only way they'll ever have the great wine of the great feast is if his blood is shed for the purification of their lives. His blood and his wine, you know how we make that connection in the Lord's Supper, are the same thing. He loved to talk about his blood as wine because, you see, wine has medicinal value. You put it on wounds, it gets rid of an infection. And at the same time, it also brings incredible joy. And Jesus says, unless you have finally understood this image, unless you're willing to see me not as an abstraction, not to see me just as somebody you're supposed to emulate morally, but unless you see that my blood has to be the thing you trust in, that my blood is the thing that cleanses you, you'll never know this joy. That the only way we can enter that joy is through his sorrow. What you have to see is that there's a process by which we learn his joy and receive his joy. And it happens if we do what Mary did. You know what Mary did? She did everything he told her to do. Do you remember what she said? After she gets rebuffed, he talks to her in this very confused way. What does she do? She says, well, she doesn't say, well, forget it then. I was just asking a simple question. Instead, she turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he says. Do you know why? It doesn't matter, she's saying, that we can't understand him. We can't understand him not because he's crazy, it's because we're crazy. Not because he's so dark and confused, he's all light. We're the ones who are dark and confused. If he has delayed, if he's asking us to do anything, then he knows what he's doing. Maybe right now that's where you are. There, there are things that Jesus asks you to do and you're not really sure. Maybe there are things you've asked God for and you don't hear anything from him and it's just not making sense. And you're saying, well, Lord, what are you about here? All Mary said was, I don't understand him. I don't know what he's talking about, but whatever he says, stick with him because he's our only hope. And that's what the text is saying to us. It's saying to us that we need to recognize that every other kind of wine we're sipping right now will eventually run out. The other things that we often run after will not satisfy us. The deep-seated needs, the critical needs of our lives will not be satisfied by this world. Take it from the people who have tried them. Take it from the people who have had all the resources, all the celebrities, all their money, all their partners, all their relationships. It just doesn't work. It doesn't deliver. And perhaps right now, you're longing above everything else that you would know something of this joy. And maybe... Some of you are thinking, well, if I really do what Jesus asks me to do, I'm going to have to give up some things. Some things that I'm really counting on to give me joy. All you have to do is to realize that it's only what Jesus asks you to do that will give you the wine, that will really bring the joy. In the great divorce uh, that fanciful story by C.S. Lewis about a busload of people from hell who get to the outskirts of heaven. 
And the people from heaven come down to try to get the people from hell to receive Christ and to come into heaven. And that's the way the story goes on. And there's one man on the bus from hell who has got a little rat on his shoulder. And the little rat represents some kind of sin in his life. And the little rat's talking to him and saying, you better not go to heaven because they won't let me come with you and you can't live without me. So at one point, one of the bright people from heaven walks on down and says, hey, take my hand. Come on, let's go to heaven. Let's go to him. And the person from hell says, well, I'm sorry, my little friend here couldn't go with me. And if he won't go with me, and then I couldn't possibly go with you, I just couldn't possibly do it. And the bright person from heaven says, well, let me kill it. Oh, no, says the man, you don't understand. That would hurt too much. It'd be too difficult. I couldn't possibly let you do it. Let me kill it, he says. And finally, he convinces the person from hell, all right, okay, I don't have the strength. Go ahead and do it. And the bright person from heaven grabs the little rat, kills it, throws it to the ground, and its dead body transforms itself into a big, huge, beautiful horse with great wings, and they ride on the horse into heaven together. And as they're riding, the voice of God comes down from heaven and says, the strengths that once opposed your will shall be obedient fire in your blood and heavenly thunder in your voice. Tim Keller uses that illustration. He says he never really understood those words, but one day he says he was talking to a friend of his who had come to Christ. Uh, he had struggled with homosexuality for a big part of his life, and he told Tim exactly what that meant. And he loved that passage from the great divorce. He said, when I first considered coming to Christ, I realized I was going to have to give up all these relationships, all these contacts. And I said, I can't do that. I need that. I have to have it. It's my joy. But he did come to Christ, and in the process he was healed. And he said to Tim, when I did finally come in, I discovered when the struggle was finally over, it left me far more disciplined than I would have been before, far more aware of my own insides, far more skillful at helping other people who hurt, far more aware of my own weakness, and far more confident that God can, lo can love and change anyone. He said when he reads that passage in The Great Divorce, the old sin, when I gave it up, became obedient fire in my blood. It became heavenly thunder in my voice. Folks, let me finish. There's nothing you can give him that he won't actually in some way give back to you as part of the great wedding feast. The only place you can actually find real and lasting joy is with Jesus. He's Lord and he's in charge of that great feast. He designed and he built our joy sensors. And the feast we've been searching for, the joy we've been craving, the wine we need only comes from him. Do whatever he says. Obey him completely. Trust in him fully. Stick with him. Because there's no other place to go. I wish somebody had told me that.
when I was a young teenager and a young person struggling with the Christian life. My father tried to tell me. I don't know that I got it or understood it. But I am older. And I have to tell you, every other wine you sip will disappoint you. It won't bring you the joy you desire. Jesus is the joy giver. He's the one who can provide wine in abundance. Not only in this life, but that will last for all eternity. Let me finish just by reading you three verses from the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 25, and beginning at verse 6. The best wine is saved to the last in our lives. Listen to this invitation. Isaiah 25 verse 6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen.